Welcome to episode number 54 of the Fitness Devil Podcast. Uh, Dean and I actually do need to figure out the exact date of our uh, one-year anniversary of making these, but we're pretty much right around there, so we'll unofficially treat this as our one-year anniversary. And for that, we brought on uh, Toronto-based strength coach Lee Boyce. I've been following Lee for a really long time. Um, He's someone that I've loved the quality of his work, so we wanted to get him on here. So he gets into a whole bunch of stuff about uh, some of the systemic problems in the industry, the fitness industry. Uh, he's pretty blunt and clear on his thoughts, even if those thoughts aren't necessarily popular. And that's one of the reasons why I respect him so much. We talk about how the fitness industry can contribute to unhealthy minds, especially some of the social media issues. We expose some of the lies that trainers will tell about their careers and their credentials and, and how that's pretty dubious stuff. People need to stop that. We also look at how a lot of trainers want to get into the industry to train high-level athletes and celebrities and how generally unrealistic that is and how to go about that. And we also get into Lee's experiment where he actually lifted weights every day for an entire year and the pros and the cons, how that felt. And we get into some uh, books, book talk as we do with everybody, but this time it also involves some movies. So guys, thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you'll love the episode. Give us a five-star review and go check out Lee on his social media. Hey everyone, welcome to the episode. Uh, Today we've got Lee Boyce on here. He's a Toronto-based strength coach and prolific fitness writer. He's someone I followed for a very, very long time. I've been reading his work off of uh, sites like T-Nation. And I enjoy the fact that Lee doesn't always color within the lines of the play nice rules of our industry. Uh, he's more prone to speaking his mind and not really care too much about what everybody else thinks or their approval. So, Lee, we're really grateful to have you on today. Welcome. Thanks a lot, man. It's good to be here. Cool. I think let's just let's just dive right in. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I guess usually we talk about origin stories, but do, are we going to go into it? Well, you know, Lee, if you um, if you want to tell us a little bit more, kind of about you and your background, you don't have to get too in depth in origin stories because you know most of the time it's easy to find that sort of stuff online or in other podcasts. But yeah, um, well, I don't know. Basically, I I started out doing um, a lot of. Uh, track and field that was my main sport in school and uh, I took that to university as well as uh, at the same time that I was a kinesiology student so uh, while I was uh, still running a couple of injuries sort of started setting me back and that kind of got me interested in the rehab aspect which was my original thing that I wanted to do but um, you know it started becoming a question of do I want to work with healthy people or do I want to work with injured people all the time and uh, <laughs> what 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 worked more what was more appealing to me was uh, working with healthier people or making people healthier and you know like all that athletic stuff so yeah. I kind of wanted to get towards uh, personal training and strength coaching and whatnot and so that's sort of what brought me into this well, I guess you also uh, not terribly long ago recovered from a fairly significant injury too so like you've had your own experiences with uh, injury recovery yeah, like, uh, you know, over the last, I'd say, five or six years, there has been uh, stuff with regards to, like, my lower back and whatnot and just different back issues and whatnot. So that would uh, already sort of have me have a different uh, perspective on the way that I trained. And then, of course, last year or just over a year ago now, I got that uh, double double knee surgery that I had to have for uh, a big injury on the basketball court. So that uh, really, really changed a whole lot after that. And, and here we are. So I'm, I'm on the road to recovery, though, which is good. Did you, uh, fight, like, I, I played football my whole life in university. Like, I think I've had, like, three surgeries, two. I don't even remember at this point. Do you find that, like, your injuries have kind of impacted, I guess, 
your own research and impact the way in which you, I guess, establish your training model going forward after those things? Well, definitely, because the way that a lot of people look at things, especially if they're either pretty young or like never been hurt before in, in a major or a significant way, then they always assume that any sort of sort of uh, parameters for training or any sort of programming or whatnot or any sort of directives for training are going to be geared towards people who are also healthy and people who don't need to take uh, certain things into account or accommodation, right? So um, for me personally, like even things like uh, rest interval between or what load or rates of perceived exertion, these things all take a little bit more uh, more. Uh, uh, what's the word precedence in your programming now compared to before? And you know, if you've got somebody who's older, who's a client, because this is what this is what this should all be focused towards is with the clients more so than ourselves when we're looking at stuff and we're studying stuff. Like it can help us, but we're we're relatively young, we're already relatively athletic, and so on. When you got a guy who's 52 and he's not been in the gym or done anything athletic for the last like 27 years like this is somebody who is going to really need your attention and who really needs to benefit from the things that we're researching and the things we're studying so you know someone like that might have had shoulder surgery one year and then 20 years later had a hip surgery or a knee surgery and so on and like all sorts of stuff and then they're dealing with chronic pain here and there like what kinds of things do we do do we throw them into a conditioning program just because they're good exercises or do we look deeper and I guess, and I guess that that's kind of the evolution. I would say a lot of new trainers will kind of go through because you go to school and you know you, you deadlift, bench, whatever the fuck they do, and then they kind of almost take that model and just throw it on everyone, like everyone's the same. And I think that that experience is kind of where the evolution of the trainer should be going. But it's almost it's interesting because I don't think a lot of new people think like that right out of the box. You know what I mean? Right. It's a mistake that I made as well with regards to sort of force feeding exercises to every client mm -hmm. and making clients, uh, make me, making myself think that because squats and deadlifts are such important exercises, relatively speaking, that everybody who's training with me should have a strong conventional squat and a strong conventional deadlift. And there's no ways to, 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 to train their posterior chains, for example, yeah. other than doing these particular movements and making them like power lifters, right? So um, it's it's a rabbit hole that we all can get caught going down, and um, even experienced trainers too can get caught doing that for certain phases of their year with certain clients. And um, it's not always the greatest thing. Like, there are lots of other ways to get somebody in shape and get somebody functioning and moving well, and uh, get somebody feeling good about uh, their their results and seeing you know whether it's aesthetic progress, whether it's performance related progress, whether it's movement and biomechanical progress. And there there are a lot of different ways to uh, to look at it and to approach that. Uh, that makes me think of something that will lead into my next question. I've seen, I, I won't ever say names, there's one individual drives me fucking crazy who takes a lot of older women and people who will get them into powerlifting. And it's it's this individual's preferred way of training everyone. But Is this here? No, it's not okay, here. Okay. Look at the bridge. <laughs> a lot of older women, a lot of obese women... And they'll, he seems to shove them all into powerlifting. Of course, that all of a sudden they're winning medals in lesser known federations because there's next to nobody in their weight classes and age categories. And it's parading this around. There's a lot of video of dubious looking form on their, their deadlifting and their squat. I have no stuff. idea who you're talking no, about. No, no, I'm not, I'm not even going to allude to it in that sense. But this kind of leads me into something that, uh, you know, you've really established yourself as someone who, is comfortable calling the industry on its bullshit and speaking freely on uh, problems and misbehaviors. How did you come to be that way? How did you establish that? Well, 
honestly, it was because I wanted my blog to be used for a completely different purpose than 98% of blogs that I'd seen out there. Yeah. And um, I sort of did the whole writing thing in a backwards way because um, most people had blogs before they started looking for publications to work for to be published in. And I was looking for the publications first before starting a blog. And that was like probably much harder to do. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. And so that's why I did it that way. It wasn't any sort of like strategy or anything like that. I just didn't know what to do. So uh, afterwards, you know, I found out that, you know, okay, I should probably have a blog if I'm writing and whatnot, because actually an interested client was the one who said, you know, it doesn't look good that you don't have one. So you better, you better get on that. So I did. And, um, yeah, so I sort of asked myself, like, what kind of stuff would I want to put on it? Did I just want to put six different ways to improve your bench press and three different mobility drills that you should do while you're at home? And I didn't want to do that because I already wrote enough stuff for different pubs about that, right? Yeah. So instead, um, I wanted to just talk about things that I saw around me in the industry and things that I thought that not enough people were bringing attention to. And um, especially lately in the last, I'd say, you know, three to five years, I've been really focusing on kind of like the social cultural aspect of yeah. fitness and training and how that affects somebody's psychology and, and just all of that sort of thing and how we can sort of all get caught sort of in this little pigeonhole of, of, of thinking that this is the answer to a lot more than it's the answer to, you know, and, um, I don't really, I've never been of that sort of thinking myself. And I've, I've always sort of thought it was a little bit, a little bit odd or strange to be that way and so i wanted to make uh, a point of really about bringing that to the forefront that, that, that people shouldn't really necessarily just look at training as this whole journey towards self-actualization that it, it's it's not that man and um you know i could go on for days about this but you get the idea <laughs> absolutely when i was even expand on that because i'm thinking like fuck I can think of a thousand articles like that and even we get caught up in it sometimes what do you actually I guess we'll talk about self-actualization what piece of the puzzle does a training coach play in I guess someone's journey then is it just the training aspect like how do you view it I guess well bluntly it, it's really it's really dependent on the clientele that you're working with at the time you yeah. know if I was a trainer who was specializing with a lot of young children for example and I was working with kids who were under 18 years old well at 31, you can be a serious role model to those people in more than just the gym, outside of the gym, the way you conduct yourself, the way that you, um, your viewpoint on a lot of stuff and so on, because you're going to be seeing them very frequently, you know, and that's not to say that if you're dealing with people who are over 40, that, that, that changes drastically, you can still be a very positive influence on them. But you see, I, the, the thing that makes me sort of, um, uh, it bought, makes me balk at like how much uh, influence you have over someone is when you start taking your own personal journey or well, your own personal fitness experience or whatnot, and you make it about more than it is. You know, you make it about um, being like a, a more complete person and being a bit more of a spiritual person or whatever have you, you know, not knocking any of that stuff. I'm just saying that sometimes we take this whole thing out of context and we make it seem like because we've gotten results in the gym, it means that we are a better quality individual than we once were, you know, and I just don't, I don't really, I can't abide that, you know? So, um, yeah, I, yeah. I get, you, they're basically not mutually like they're not the same. And like, even if I look at what I post about mindfulness, all the shit, like training's fucking not that like they're right. separate entities in itself. And it's almost like, I get what you're saying. Basically, people are pretend, even like the whole side of people training, thinking they're warriors and all this shit. Like it's, it's that same right. idea of they're putting something else onto something that's literally just training your body. 
Right. And so uh, on top of me asking, like, who are you to be the one saying this stuff about life coaching, number mm-hmm. one, because none of us have credentials in that for the most mm-hmm. part anyway. Um, so aside from me saying that, asking that <laughs> question, I sort of also note that a lot of the people who take this posture with regards to this stuff in the industry, they usually started out in a place that was incredibly flawed. And so it was never like in a place where they were in a state of normalcy to begin with that brings them to this point. They're all, there was some kind of like, whether it was a very insecure or body, body self-esteem issues or depressed or, you know, some kind of an ailment or whatnot first. And then they take this swing into the other direction where all of a sudden they're trying to preach this stuff and um it just in both sides of the spectrum it doesn't seem like it promotes any sort of equilibrium or normalcy right and so that's sort of uh an interesting thing to note um actually this is kind of interesting kind of goes this whole blunt thought process and and you're right it's kind of almost rampant these last i say three or four years since social media has blown up but we have a lot of fitness professionals that do listen to this how do you think that they navigate that? Because everyone comes for whatever the fuck their journey is. So like injury, psychology, weight loss, blah, 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 blah. How do they tell that narrative in a, I guess, a, a better way professionally without looking like a fucking loser? <laughs> That's the best so, way I could ask that. The narrative being like that you shouldn't really mix fitness with more than it is? Is that the question? Uh, just to not make it look like you're, you're flip-flopping from one end to the spectrum. Like, do they just be honest about that journey? Because I think a lot of people, like you said, will talk about how something years prior and then all of a sudden they're like, here's your five tips. You got to do this, this, and this, and this. And it just mimics the exact journey that they just went on. Like, how do they be more honest about their approach to giving information to people without well, kind of biasing it? Too much of it has to depend on what they're doing for their own selves yeah. with regards to their fitness journey because that's the first – like they're going to always pull from anecdote first, right? Yeah. If you're uh, a longtime power lifter, for example, and you're going to train a 60-year-old lady for general – fitness for general health and fitness who has no interest in competing there will still be shades of powerlifting training in what you give that person it's just how it is you know if you've been a bodybuilder or fitness competitor for a really long time and you've got a 15 year old who's looking to get in better shape same thing you're probably going to give them a little bit more shading towards bodybuilding training methods than you would somebody else right um, when I started out training clients, a lot of my clients were getting exercise that I pulled straight from my track practices because that's what it was, right? Now, um, my point in saying all this stuff is that when somebody has um, clientele that we want to deliver a more balanced, um, balanced message towards, if we don't have a balanced viewpoint of training in our own selves and the way that we approach it, it's going to be a lot harder for us to, to deliver that message, at least in good honesty anyway, right? So um, it's more a question of what habits are you endorsing and what habits are you taking on yourself when you're training? Um, Are you really, really deeply entrenched in that bastion of extremism or are you um, more balanced about it? Are you are you killing yourself when you get into the gym? Are you killing yourself when you take a rest day? Are you killing yourself when you miss a lift or when you cheat a meal and whatnot? Like these are good questions to ask yourself. And if your goals are recreational and they're not competitive, then how much legs does this really have? What is the lifespan of a, of a, a lifestyle or mentality like this, right? Yeah. So that's that's kind of uh, my, my answer to that. It would just be a, you have to take a, a look at yourself first, I guess. Well, and that's, I guess, the hard problem is on the consumer end, it's hard to read through, I guess. I don't know if you can call it bullshit because not everyone's bullshitting. But, I mean, it's hard to see that with the, I guess, facade some people put on. But that leads me to other stuff. 
I guess, do you have any more thoughts or I guess one thoughts on some of the systemic problems in the fitness industry, like right now, especially with like some of these key topics that have been popping up lately? Um, well, I think that, I think that we have to turn our attention away from educating others as much or educating each other as much and turn it more towards educating the public. In other words, there's a lot of fitness conferences and seminars and workshops and lectures and, and whatever summits and whatever else you want to call it that um, help professionals better themselves as an industry and improve the quality of the industry, supposedly, allegedly. Right. But the thing is, is that when the general public is the most frequently exposed to the Tracy Anderson method and the Jillian Michaels stuff and so on, (laughs) all the biggest platforms that are available to us like TV and media and whatnot. And what we talk about in these workshops and classes and seminars and whatnot is will always remain underground as compared to what I just mentioned. Um, How accessible is that information? And, and the general, if we really care about making the industry a better industry and making people fitter and solving the obesity crisis and whatever else, then are we taking the right steps by constantly just attending workshops and educating each other? Or should we be putting out more, uh, more um, lines of communication with the general public so they know where they can locate their hamstrings and locate their lats and, and talk about five really effective ways to uh, elicit fat loss or to get stronger or 10 exercises that they probably should be practicing or what mobility is and other really baseline things like that because there's still huge discrepancies over those simple topics, right? And so uh, all of a sudden when you see a Tracy Anderson method, 9 out of 10 people on the street will be able to say, oh, that's silly, right? This yeah. me- these methods don't make any sense. This is not going to help any goals or whatnot. But, and, and so gimmicky fitness fads that are making millions of dollars will, will become obsolete and will, will be um, outnumbered by the amount of people who say this is not good and so it won't make them any money, right? Um, so that's sort of what I think about that is educating the public a little bit more rather than educating each other and that would be uh, one of the biggest steps we can take. And um, yeah, I try to do what I can in doing that as well. I love that. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone put it quite in those terms or that context. And I'm surprised it never occurred to me. Um, we, I know the industry spends a lot of time kind of patting each, patting each other on the back for a job well done. Something we do talk about a lot, we've said it on the podcast several times, is the discussion about how to get some of the people in our industry and who is doing a good job of it into getting in front of the mainstream more. We always use the analogy about getting people on Jillian, Mi- Jillian Michaels level. Yeah, exactly. She so, has an impact. And, and I look at fun. people like, uh, well, I certainly think that Mark Fisher, Sohi Lee, Jordan Syatt, among many others, both have that kind of persona appeal. Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, they're doing a really good job. They're growing and gaining following. And I think it's these kind of people who have the best opportunity to break but, into that. But it pales in comparison. And I guess to, that's the problem. Again, and, yeah. Or Kardashians always make that sort of illusion that, you know, you have Kardashians pumping out fitness information. And yeah, we have to do a better job of grabbing the public's attention. I guess, I guess just, yeah. just based on your experience in the industry, cause it, I would say, honestly, no one's really doing a good job because no one's on that level. How I, I'm going to say, what is a better way of going about trying to at least get that out there? Cause it's fucking hard. <laughs> it is. And there's got to be a little bit of a, a balance and it's got to be sort of like a hybrid approach that you take from um, the cosmetic and the aesthetic and the stuff that's going to be the hot button topics that yeah. will make TV producers, for example, think that this is a great idea to put out there because we're uh, people are always going to be, you know, 
oriented towards the visual, number one, um, oriented towards the easy route, number two, and uh, something that's just like a, a nice, neat package like that, right? Yeah. So the question is, how do you package good scientific theoretical training information that people need into a package that they would actually like or want, you know? And there are certain commercialized training methods and people out there who can do that better than others, but it still involves a lot of them selling out their theoretical knowledge to a certain degree and, and, you know, making their peers not be too happy with them, i.e. people like Tracy Anderson, et cetera. Right. So, so when you think about uh, just how to do it, it's, it's a matter of, yeah, do you, I guess like for lack of a better term, do you look the part? Can you dumb down good information in a way that young people or people who are very, uneducated towards training can understand and um yeah and you have a method that has you know like a, a, a snappy name or some kind of like a a, a nice little hook that's a, a good idea for you to to follow <laughs> without compromising good training information and good advice right there's someone in uh, we've had a lot of guests recently from toronto oddly enough that i'm not sure how well networked you are with people but what you just said kind of reminds me of what jason maxwell j max fitness we just had him on just released his podcast and he's doing a pretty good job of taking a lot of classic, basic information uh, and really creating a compact and usable form for the end user on his Instagram. And his Instagram has blown up as a result. Well, it's cliche in terms of the bros, but he's putting, I don't, it, but it's that whole idea of it is Instagram, like the infographic shit. Like that does, yeah. t- like, and it's, it's kind of fading out a little bit, but that's where the people are at weirdly enough. And it's hard to turn, put good information in an infographic. Like it's hard. Yeah. It so, is, and um, I know who I know who Jason Maxwell is. Actually, I've met him a couple of times as well. And um, yeah, like his method with regards to using uh, those simple, like just simple little um, mock-ups of things to to talk about. Here's what you do do. Here's what you don't do. Here's a good example of this, and here's a bad example of this. Like these are things that are quick. They're easy to read. They're easy to 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 learn from, and so on. And Hopefully they're actionable as well, and um, you know it's 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 something that can do its little part in upping again, like I said, that baseline knowledge for your typical client or your typical um, you know uh, middle of the road gym goer to to understand and apply, you know, and that'll just uh, hopefully be a, a drop in the pond for people to actually get better at training without uh, taking in that garbage information that circulates on the bigger platforms. Okay. Let's ask you, uh, let's go in a different direction now, and it's an article that you wrote recently, I thought it was pretty fantastic, on how the fitness industry contributes to unhealthy minds. You mentioned self-worth, validity, and a phrase that I really loved, uh, quote, social media creates a platform for many to disguise their actual levels of self-confidence, end quote. Would you expand on the damage you see happening? Yeah, um, that could actually be taken in a whole bunch of different ways, because, um, you know, using the idea of hiding behind your computer, for example, in, in the middle of a, of a argument for uh, uh, on a comment thread on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you know, a lot of people, it just gives people a lot of uh, falsified confidence to start talking in no way like they would if they were face to face with anybody. It doesn't matter how much bigger or stronger you are than someone or how much more intimidating you are than somebody. It just, you're no longer polite. You're no longer an individual who has any sort of a proper upbringing or raised in a good way or uh, has values anymore. And all of a sudden all that gets stripped away because you feel like you can talk about somebody however you want to talk about them. And, and because you're not face to face, it's everything is every, everything's on the table. You can just do it. And it's not, 
it's not cool at all. You know, there's no tact in that. There's no grace in that. It wouldn't, it doesn't reflect good on you. It makes you look like an idiot basically, you know? And so, um, that's one way that I was saying, uh, that like why I use that statement. But the second way that I was using that statement is a totally different light. It's about the idea of like, um, the need for, um, validation and affirmation and, and the need for uh, positive reinforcement for the things that you do or what you said or what you what you look like or whatever it is and so when people uh, are quick to post basically anything that they do it's a trip to the grocery store a photo of their food um, a, a half naked selfie uh, you name it I think that a lot of the times what might look like something that's praiseworthy and uh, done in confidence and whatnot is really a cry for attention and um, it's not I don't think that can contribute to a long-term good mindset without being a clinical psychologist. I don't know these things deep down, but I can't see that. I can't see that being a good thing. You know, we always ask each guest about, you know, their, their social media and virtually every guest I think we've had on has an Instagram of some kind, but I'm pretty sure you don't have an Instagram. So, you know, you're being authentic in what you're saying here. Maybe he does and you didn't know. No, I don't have an Instagram. (laughs) Actually, Lee, uh, you're one of the hardest people I find to actually get uh, to follow on social media. You don't, on your Facebook, you don't allow a follow option. So I actually had to reach out and add you to Facebook to connect and, and, uh, and he made it hard for you, man. He went the easy route. So (laughs) there's an implied question there that I'll make explicit. So why that choice not to be more accessible on social media? Because obviously people have to then go to your website, your articles. Well, for one, I think that it's a little bit of a better screening process for me to make sure that the following that I, well, I don't like using the term following, to make sure that the readership that I do have is much more um, organic and and true. And they actually decided to hit the like button or hit the ad friend button or whatnot because they genuinely wanted to yeah. hear or learn from whatever it is that I have to put out. Um I don't really have much other reason other than that. I just want to make sure that the, the group of people that I that I do have that are paying attention to what I've got to do are people that are paying attention to it for the right reasons. And they, they put effort a little bit into it, as, as silly as that might sound, because that means that the engagement will be a little bit better when I do have something to share. Well, you know, and sorry, go ahead. No, I said you go ahead. I, I have a point to that after, but yeah. Yeah, like just the engagement will be a little bit better when I do have something to share. And, uh, you know, if I wanted to put something out with regards to like a product or whatnot, I know that there would be a genuine interest or there would not be a genuine interest from people who are pretty serious about um, good training advice or the information that I have. Um, So uh, that's the real reason I didn't put out. I haven't put out an Instagram yet and whatnot. And and honestly, two forms of social media is more than enough for me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I haven't put out an Instagram yet just because I do see a lot of fluffy accounts and a lot of very, very, um, you know, salacious accounts even that I'll say that, that just makes me sort of, it turns me off from doing that and sort of being in the same arena as that. And uh, it's going to take a lot of deep thought when I do, because I will, when I do add like an Instagram and whatnot, how I'm actually going to approach putting that out and how am I going to approach using that. Um, I, I have to take a very, very uh, careful approach to it. So I don't fall into certain categories that, that would, in my opinion, take away from my reputation. I already use social media just for work alone. And that's basically it. Um, I don't post photos of, of, of things that I'm doing at the time. I don't talk about 
anything other than training. If I have an article or a video to share about training, that's all that's going on my social media on both forms. So that's basically it. And, uh, you know, the, the furthest that I'll go is an odd movie review every week. That's about it. <laughs> we'll touch on that after. But I think that's a good point is that I think there can be a lot of fatigue with social media if you're, I'm not going to say, um, inauthentic, but a lot of the, the cookie cutter ways of doing Instagram do lead to that validity profile and the self-confidence thing. And, and that's fatiguing itself. So unless you're doing it for the reasons why you want to do it, I don't know. I could just see it not adding to the whole, but another part about followership and just the way you're kind of doing things is, is weirdly enough because a podcast is kind of a, a medium in which people have to click through and actually consume and they need to want to listen to it. Yeah. Instagram followings do not, and I can say that personally, do not lead necessarily to bigger numbers. And it's kind of cool because a lot of the people who, who built email lists and really reliable audiences, we've seen with their podcasts because they just slam straight to them. And it, it's everything's not as it seems. It's more or less what I'm getting to. Well, and it's just interesting. It goes to what something that Lee said about having a high level of engagement with the people who are following him. Your people, yeah. Be, Instagram is probably the lowest, oh, most yeah. superficial level of engagement. You, yeah. know, you can quick a, click a quick like and not even read the caption and scroll. And I have to believe that a lot of the people who are following stuff on Instagram, it, it's so surface level yeah. that, yeah. you know, especially for a fitness professional, that's just, you're not necessarily getting a lot of stuff that'll end up leading to click throughs on your webpage. And like you said, with the yeah. podcast. And it's so, a, yeah. a little bit on that. I have something to say about that is that uh, like, that's one thing that I've always been so fearful of and tried to sort of uh, guard against is that, um, with regards to Facebook and with regards to Twitter, which are the only two forms of social that I've got right now, is I see some people on there, and like I, I can't even name you names. I don't like I just I've seen accounts on Lots. there where it's like a hundred thousand followers or a fan page that has like two hundred thousand likes or whatever, and uh, and uh, a Twitter account that has like sixty thousand followers and whatnot, and um, then you see each of their individual posts. And you wonder if, A, if many of these followers were purchased and it was just mm -hmm. like just to create the facade that there's more than there is, or if the engagement is really that low. Because I see a post and it's like this person has a new blog article out and uh, the post says, you know, um, here's 10 ways to improve your deadlift or whatever the blog article is about. And then you see out of 30,000 followers and it has like six likes. Yeah. And you see a post on their Facebook, 100,000 followers, and they put a post saying, you know, um, I am about to do a podcast with, uh, you know, like whoever, whoever, um, stay engaged or whatnot. And then you see five likes on that, you know, and it's like it doesn't make any sense because, you know, like I I'm looking at my Twitter right now and I have 10,538 followers right now, you know, and if I make a tweet that's pretty decent, it'll have, you know, a couple hundred likes on it and it'll have a few dozen retweets to it and so on. You know, I see one from two days ago that has 400 likes on it yeah. and 70 retweets on it. Right. So it's like, and that's out of only 10,000 people, relatively speaking, that's a low number. So, I mean, it would only make sense for you to seek engagement before you seek volume and numbers because it doesn't matter how many faces it's in front of. If people aren't going to click or, or say they like it or say that they're into it or share it, then what's the point? Yeah. You know? and, and it's funny too because like back when Instagram was start, not starting, but like kind of when I got into it, there was like these ways you do it. You get in groups and everyone likes each other. And I got fucking exhausted. It, it kind of worked, but it didn't. But it's one of those things where engagement is king and, and you can do the math 
on like all the Twitter stuff and all the likes and stuff. Like no one's if you're looking, it's not that fucking hard to see who has an actual following. And I think that right. that's what's more important because well, it is more important. You're doing things ass backwards, let's say, to what people say you should do, but it's fine because like you have a tribe, you have a people and uh, it it just hasn't correlated with podcasts, even like with our likes on our Facebook. Eh. But then we have like a, a, a massive following that kind of always is down like right on time. But it's not through any of the stuff that you can see visually. And I think that's where it matters. It's just right. be what you are, where you're at, and then just seek actual engagement. Some of the people that I really respect and, and I follow for a long time are people that, like, like I said, you know, you've been writing and I've been following what you wrote on T Nation for a long time. Uh, people like yourself and Dean Somerset. Again, actually, it's kind of funny because I'd both started working for the same company that Dean did in uh, in Edmonton, Alberta. We both since left and now we're under a different umbrella owning our own businesses. But he was also a teenage writer. So I kind of both worked for the same company and discovered him two ways separately, internal continuing education, but also as this teenage writer as, as I was following it. And I think a lot of people of that era before Instagram was ever even a thing have done a really good job of building up their organic followings and they get that high level of engagement. And it's you see a little bit of a difference contrasting, say... I think someone who's done a really good job with his Instagram growth is uh, Carter Good. He's been on our podcast twice, and he's a friend. And Carter is fantastic at getting in and engaging in comments, and I think that draws that engagement. But I also think there's a lot of people who are big on Instagram, as you said. Just shit. And they're, they're <laughs> not getting that kind of level of engagement, anything beyond superficial. So I respect the guys who, I hate the, the cliche term, but been in the trenches and, and done the hard work the way that you and Dean But have. it's just a different world. And I think right. some of the younger people coming up, they live there. So, I mean, they don't see the way you did things as the way to do it. Just because they didn't grow up in that era. Like, they didn't have to experience and learn the things you had to do. And they it's also, just different. They also have a new tool. I mean, Instagram is a very, very easy tool to explode in popularity. Jason Maxwell. Yes. Uh, back to him. I mean, his following has blown up in the space of a year. Same thing with Carter. You know, these followings, they're in the hundreds of thousands of followers. And that happened in the space of a year. They, when you started out, that wasn't physically possible. You couldn't do right. that. Wrote right. blogs and write. You're earning one like, follower at a time. Yeah, and like again, like if you have two hundred thousand followers in in a, in a short period of time, does that really truly mean that two hundred thousand people are very familiar with what you do and who you are, like what you, what you're putting on your content and whatnot? No, like that's no, a no. really high number of people and. Like for the guys that I looked up to in the industry that that sort of made me get get sort of started get really into like serious training like proper proper information out there you know I think about guys like you know Eric Cressy Dan John Tony Gentilcore Nick Tominello yeah. Mark Ripto the list goes on and on right all these guys that I just listed they're all well minus one they're all forty plus like these are all guys who've been around right and so for that reason like. I look at what their tactic was. Forget social media, whether or not social media was even a thing. Yeah. I look at their, their tactic. How did they get extremely popular without the presence of even Facebook? You know, um, well, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with, you know, personally working hard, doing what you have to do in person with one-on-one -on -one clients, with group training sessions, with sports athletes, with whoever it is, with teams, um, going out to do workshops and then start writing a blog article and whatnot. And like, these are the different tactics that they had to use in order to build proper engagement, real engagement where, you know, here we are sitting around talking about Dan John because he's Dan John and everyone knows who Dan John is. Yeah. Right. And so like, that's one of the names that I would like to be myself. And, and I don't think that it's going to come from, 
you know, just fabricating a fitness following on social media only when you're 23, you know, and um, I just I don't see that as being something that's very sustainable. And I think that it's something that will be very, very short term for a lot of people who are really down that road with it or, or very commercialized where they won't be really considered as much of a fitness leader or somebody who's very influential outside of that short term social media, like quick kind of stuff that's very commercialized right and and i would say let's let's go there so like and you've spoken about it before um trainers who essentially lie about the careers or the credentials or their experience and kind of what kind of things have you more specifically seen and kind of would you expand on that just based on your experience and and what you've seen in, in this industry um you know i've helped thousands of people reach their goals how is that even possible unless you're like 95 years old? (laughs) So that's number one of help successfully change the lives of thousands of people or just some kind of superfluous numbers like that. Um, So that's number one. Um, I've also heard that, uh, you know, people who are like 24 years old and they say that they have like, you know, up to over 10 years of experience in the industry or, you know, 12 years or 15 years experience in the industry is helping people with their fitness. And it's like, well, I didn't know you could get credentials when you're 13. Jordan Jordan uh, Syed actually uh, legitimately started out super young, but pretty much everybody illegal, yeah. illegally i think yeah. <laughs> yeah well okay so like i mean like one with exceptions yeah. it's <laughs> usually it's usually not true right and then the, the third thing that i've usually heard is something along the lines of i've uh, have experience as a competitive athlete for the last like 20 20 years right and they're like 23 and it's like well i didn't know that playing like peewee hockey counted as that like as a competitive athlete and, and playing playing like little league baseball and stuff like that like i don't it's like putting that you were the. It's like putting on your resume right now at age thirty-one that you were uh, the the high school chess champion or something like that. Like it doesn't matter anymore. Like these are you're too past that, right? So I think that over overdoing like your credentials and in, in your career or overdoing. I think your career should really be including what you did when you were an adult or very close to. That's what I really think. Lee, was it right? you that so, said? Um, I, I was pouring through your tweets recently, and I, and I just to research for this article. It was it you that criticized or made fun of people who like are a sole proprietor trainer or their own business, don't have anybody hired, kind of like uh, yeah. I do, who call themselves CEO or president of their company. Was that you that said yeah. that? I figured. Yeah, I said that, and uh, yeah, it's sort of along those lines, you know, like talk about the the chief operating officer or whatever <laughs> of LeeBoysTraining.com, and it's like, okay, well. Uh, technically, I guess it's true, but at the same time, LeeBoysTraining.com is just Lee Boys, right? So I could say that I'm the treasurer, the secretary, the sole prefer- like I, I could say I'm mean, all those things, right? I'm just everything, <laughs> you know. And so, like, my business card is just covered in words, right? So it's just like, do you really need to do that after a while? Like, it's not. It doesn't. I don't think that it makes anybody look that much better than just saying, you know, you're the owner of this business, small business, this is what you do. And if you have three years experience as a trainer, you own that because soon that three will turn to five and that'll turn to 10 anyway. So like it doesn't make yourself look better if you're a kid who can barely grow a beard and you're saying that you've got 15 years experience in the industry. Like, come on. It goes to like, I I played university football growing up and like, I, I, anyways, went through that system and like I was a competitive athlete, but I barely talk about that because like 
I didn't make the show. So, like, talking about, like, stuff that you kind of fell short on doesn't seem like something I would lead with. And just, like, you know what I mean? Like, well, people are like, I'm a competitive powerlifter. But, like, you were I don't know. It's just, it's tough for well, me to hey, resonate as an athlete. But even still, and that's coming from a mentality of somebody who was clearly a serious athlete. Then, yeah. Right? Because a lot of the people who t- cut those corners usually weren't really athletes in the first place at all you know and so they try to use these kinds of these ta- these tactics and whatnot to make themselves look like something they weren't yeah. so me i listen to what you just said and i say there's no problem with that because you played post-secondary educate you played, played post-secondary in a, in, a, in a university sport competitively like of course that should be on your resume of course that should be on your bio when you talk about your website and whatnot and and me too you know i, I ran track university level like yeah. i'm going to talk about that and you pull from that experience because it has direct application to what you do and why you're doing this right yeah. so i i do believe that something like that is way better of a look than say you know, I, I played sports since I was five competitively, yeah, exactly. and it's like, well, no, no, that doesn't, that shouldn't count. <laughs> it, it goes back to the same thing about lying, though, and, and like, I know people, it's just like, you weren't a starter, like, and, and maybe that's just me being a competitive athlete, like, I super, like, but it's just like, people will talk about, yeah, I played sports, I played fucking football my whole life, and like, they, they get people that think that they were something, it's just like, the people right. who are about it don't usually talk about it in those contexts because it's it's such a small piece of who they are. And those are you can usually tell who's, I guess, the real athletes don't talk about it. They just kind of are. Right. It's, it goes back to what you guys were saying at the beginning of this song. We are talking about um, the the old powerlifters and whatnot, the, yeah. the older ladies and older men doing powerlifting competitions in a federation in a jurisdiction that nobody's heard of in a competition group where you're the only person in your group. So you will you will win no yeah. matter what you, you pull or whatever you squat. Yeah. Right. So it's like, OK, well, if you do an open fitness bikini contest or an open men's physique contest in the middle of nowhere and you're the only person in your age and height and weight category or whatever else well does that mean that you are now a champion because you got a gold medal like so you oh. can, you're gonna stamp that all over your resume i don't even tell people that know. like i'm the same so i got into powerlifting up to football like i'm a three i'm a four-time national champ in the cpf cpf i don't even right. know what fucking federation never, is. i've never heard you say that before but like because so i don't say it because yeah. it's like it's there was like 10 people and like i beat everyone by so much and it's just i'm in a small fish or a big fish in a small pond, like, fucking who cares? Like, I don't know. Right. That's just, people use that to get there. They're like, they'll go get their master's record. First thing they tell everyone, it's like, man, like, you, you squatted, like, 250 pounds. This shit, <laughs> no, this I'm sorry, shit, that's downplaying things. This but shit anyway. drives me crazy. The same person I kind of alluding to, from what I understand, once went in, and uh, age, I think age and weight category, there was only two people. He got a gold medal, and the silver medalist, I think it was Bench, <laughs> and the silver medalist actually was missing a leg. So, oh, man. But brags about the gold medal. So this kind of shit. I'm just like, how did we get here? I, and no offense to anyone listening. It's just like, I don't know. I just hate athletes. I just hate talking about people being <laughs> athletes. It's like, man, the athletes are just being athletes. They're not talking. Well, about you it. see, if the again, if we if we think about the public having a better general knowledge of all this kind of yeah. thing and understanding that. There are 50,000 jurisdictions of powerlifting and, yeah. and fitness competitions and whatnot. Then they realize when they hear those kinds of things that, oh, I might not crack up to what it is. Yeah. And I'm going to say something that I'm going to be very, very sort of careful in how I say it because I want to be respectful because I've got friends who uh, are, quote, uh, pros in physique federations that are not the IFBB. In fact, we've had at least one friend of ours on here who has such a designation and she's amazing. She's she's worked really hard and I think she got a pro card in her first show. When I think of 
true pros when it comes to aesthetic stuff. We're talking about the IFBB. And I that's have no it. fucking clue. End of story. Like, uh, a friend of mine just actually earned his IFBB Pro card, which is super cool. My buddy Isaac Bayer. And he's been working at this stuff for, well, about nine years. And it blew my mind. He's like, wow, holy shit, you know, you got your Pro card. And that means something. When I hear other Federation stuff, I know you guys have worked really hard for it. I know it's really, really cool. Especially natural, natural Federations. I got some respect for that, for sure. No one knows the difference outside. Like, I, but I'm in this. I know when, fuck when I When is. I hear Pro... And I mean, real, true, professional bodybuilder physique, all that sort of stuff. It's it's the IFBB, and everything else is is just a tear down at the very least. So, hmm. yeah, I, I, I sort of agree with you. Like, I don't have extensive, extensive knowledge on all of the different jurisdictions and all the different federations that are out there. But I mean, just the fact that there's so many of them, it makes you wonder. Just like there had to have been one that sort of kind of started it all or that sort of trumps all the other ones and from what i've seen it's got to be that ifbb as well right yeah it's it's the big leagues of that and it doesn't invalidate anything else as not being like really really great these are accomplishments that are, are worthy of some praise and some respect there's just a gray but, area with but it, is, it is the premier established long-term thing so we, we talked a lot about athletes so let's actually pivot into this question because i know you had some stuff to say a lot, we hear this all the time. A lot of trainers enter the industry. They want to train athletes. They want to work with pro athletes or high level athletes. And they also hold this illusion of being able to train big name clients and celebrities. We had our friend Chad Landers on here and he actually legitimately trains some celebrities. He <laughs> won't even like talk about no, most of them. Didn't drop any names. Yeah, we didn't even really make it about that. And Chad is actually one of the nicest, like real good guys, the genuine guys in the industry. Uh, you got a Ben Bruno who trains uh, Kate Upton. Uh, that might be a really famous example. And obviously Jordan Syatt's got Gary Vaynerchuk. But Outside of that, share your thoughts on how realistic this expectation to train high-level athletes or celebrities is and how training these clients actually isn't very different from training anyone else. Right. Um, so especially like I've actually worked with Chad myself when it comes to uh, sharing certain clients that are in that kind of like category, the celebrity-ish category with um, uh, with regards to actors and whatnot. Wait a minute. And, did, um, did you, was it Lindsay Fonseca that he sent up to you in Toronto? Is that correct? No. Oh. Uh, no, 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 he hasn't sent. He no, hasn't he's no, that, as if someone else, but he was in the Toronto area. Okay, no, I mixed some stuff up there. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, so yeah, no, but, uh, we, I have a client that I have two clients actually that are based in Toronto that are uh, in, in, you know, the, the movie business and whatnot and they're actor and actresses. And, uh, I send them up to Chad in LA when they're out there shooting and stuff. And so, uh, we do have, uh, we do have some crossover, uh, like that. And so we've done some work sort of together or in tandem, I should say, uh, with the same clients. And so, uh, with that said, um, that those two clients in my current roster represent the only two clients of that category that I have. So what I'm saying is that it's not something that you should ever really expect to put all your eggs in one basket for, unless you really make a concerted effort to, to, to platform your entire career around doing that one thing. And, um, even still that'll make it hit or miss because a lot of it will have to do with reputation. But yeah. my point is, is that, if you're going to be if you're going to have a goal of working with clients that are pure actors for example and you want to work with hollywood stars and whatnot but you live in nebraska you know it's <laughs> 
probably going to be kind of hard for you to do that. You know, I'm in Toronto. It's not going to be something that I can think of as realistic. And, you know, we got a lot of stuff. We have a Drake. lot of filming sites. There are a lot of people. You got, got musicians. You got actors. And you got people like that. You got people who are living here. And you got, uh, like, even we have next week, the Film Fest is coming to Toronto. It's the biggest one, right? So, like, there's a lot of different chances that people might have to have actors passing through, whether they're filming, whether they're sticking around for a film fest or whatnot. But even still, it's like, it's the, the sprinkling on top of the icing on top of the cake when you get clients like that, because what's going to drive the industry forward for people like us in my part, in my neck of the woods is going to be the typical business type clientele who is maybe 35 plus who has a stable income and who has a stable place to live. They might have a family and they might have the amount of money that they make per year that can afford the luxury of personal training. And that's who are the types of people that are not athletes, not pro athletes. You know, these are the kinds of people who will give you a career and will make it sustainable. And then on the side, when you do have a couple of people who are very competitive athletes, who are in the NBA or NHL on their off seasons, or who are actors, that's the icing, right? That's the cherry. Now, on top of that, we have to recognize that if we are going for clients like that predominantly, we have to recognize that their schedules aren't going to be exactly what will create a solid base of clientele for you right they're traveling every other every other month or if they have a season to play then they're going to be gone for like nine months out of the year you know so it's not like you could expect to see those people around every other week or every week it's not going to be like that you know um unless they're either injured or they're or they're not working at all you know so um a lot of these time, a lot of times when it, when it comes to uh, working with clients like that, you have to be aware of uh, just what the reality of the situation is and where you're located. Like if you set up camp in Hollywood, or you set up camp right in the middle of of of, uh, of a real hot spot for a sports team or something or sporting events or whatnot, well, that might be a little bit different. But if you're if you're if you're camped out somewhere in in BC or you're camped out somewhere Edmonton. in in Edmonton <laughs> or you're in Toronto or you're in Nebraska or Vermont or something like that. Well, I mean, it would be nice, but you got to be realistic if you want to make money doing this for a living. Well, a couple of thoughts there. One is funny enough you mentioned BC, Vancouver. If you're in Vancouver, you've got a shot because there actually is a lot of Hollywood industry stuff there. Stop uh, telling <laughs> selling people the dream and no shot. Um, but um, like I didn't start. I've been in the industry just shy of eight years, and I didn't start it with any sort of interest or delusion about training athletes or celebrities. And I now have three WH, uh, three young men in WHL uh, Western Hockey League camps at the moment. Uh, good chance that two of them will stick for sure. I think the third is a little young. He's he's going to get better as he goes on. And all of a sudden now I have a university level basketball player that just came to me. Like I didn't look for this sort of stuff. These are referrals that came from non athletic backgrounds. I didn't set myself out to train these types of athletes when they leave. And of course now the, the these guys are gone for nine months no money. For, the, for the off season. I, I love it. I actually love training them and I'll take on some more in the future, but it's still far from the backbone of, of my business. And uh, I have no uh, concept of turning around all of a sudden marketing myself as a, uh, you know, a coach who deals primarily with athletes. It just it happens right. to be really fun. I want to right before we go and talk about books we talk about a lot of the craziness going on in the industry and then you go on and do something. We'll call it a little crazy. Tell our listeners kind of about your experiment on, on, no. lift, on, on lifting every day. So it, it's, it's kind of cool because people would have misconceptions on what is possible and kind of just talk about your experience of lifting weights every day for you. 
Well, uh, the reason why I did it in the first place was I, I'm sort of in that sort of phase where I want to be able to speak from anecdote for anything that I want to comment on, right? Yeah. So, you know, there will be a lot of people who talk about CrossFit and CrossFit and CrossFit, but they never do it and they bash it relentlessly, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there will be people who talk about powerlifting training and why you shouldn't get your clients to train like powerlifters. They've never even lifted heavy in their life. Like, you know, there's there's all those types of contradiction out there. And so uh, with regards to lifting, heavy or sorry for lifting every day for a year um you know i would be one who would talk about the importance of rest days and the importance of training with a balance and the importance and the psychological detriment that it could have for you to be focused all all the time on training all the time right and so one of the reasons why i did this was because i was talking about it but i'd never trained more than like four or five days a week usually you know um minus like a month stretch where i did do every day but that was just one month so I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to do seven days a week, and I'm going to try to do it for the whole time. Now, it started out because uh, of the injury I was rehabbing from, and I was trying to go very obsessively every day, try to get the knees feeling better. And um, after the first couple of months of doing that, I was, and somebody was like, you know what? You should just do 365, man. Why don't you just do 365? And so I was like, Hell yeah. you know what? Maybe I'll think about it. Yeah, I'll try <laughs> to do it. Let me see what happens with the next month, and if that keeps going well, I'll try the next month. And uh, yeah, by like day like 100 and something, I was like, okay, I'm going for 365. <laughs> and so I did. And um, yeah, it, it definitely exposed, you know, there's a lot of good. There was a lot of bad that came with it. There was a lot of things that just opened your eyes. There's a lot. Now you know what it feels like to not take a day off of lifting weights. You know, um, it wasn't like there were some days where it was just cardio or just a light jog or just stretching and mobility. No, every day I was lifting weights, right? Yeah. I was doing an actual workout for these for those 365 days. And, um, you know, there are definitely days where I had to back off a little bit. And there are other days where I really pushed the envelope and I went hard. So, um, you know, it just gives you an idea of just like what that balance should be and what where you should really be at with your own training and and how hard you should push, whether or not you're feeling up to it, whether you're feeling sick, whether you're, you know, just like everything puts into perspective, because when you have to still make the time to train at the gym and, you know, you have a busy day or you had a bad night's sleep or you've been on your feet all day long and now it's like 9 p.m., you know, and people make the sacrifice to do those things and get into the gym and train, it tells you that A, it's possible, but B, it also tells you when you're being an idiot and when you're not, right? And, um, you know, that, that idiot or not thing is a pretty important one because if you're hurting or if you're really sore or if you're injured or if you're under the weather or if you've gotten a bad sleep or you're, you've got chronic pain or whatever it is, like a rest day might serve you really well. What, 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 what I, I'm kind of interested was there any adaptations your body had during that process, and did they hold afterwards? Just because the, um, well, the frequency would have had elicited some sort of adaptation, I would assume. Yeah. So uh, the, the first thing that I noticed was that uh, I was much more tolerant of uh, upper body loading, especially with regards to bench and strict press. Yeah. Um, I found that my upper body strength and those movements did really well, and they started getting a lot better, especially after a certain point in, the, in that year. Um, uh, so, yeah, like I, I was definitely pressing way more than I ever had, um, or at least that I could recently remember anyway, that was for sure. Now, I couldn't really test the boundaries of that with a lower body just because of the fact that I was rehabbing an injury for yeah. most, if not all of that time, right? But with that said, the frequency at which I was going in was definitely helpful for rebuilding a lot of uh, strength in those in those uh, groups um, as I went along. And uh, would they have benefited from some rest days? I probably would have, but uh, 
either way, it was still a good curve of, of, of a positive uh, advancement, that's for sure. And, and just one thing for our listeners, because I, I would assume you, you prioritize recovery. If you, <laughs> I'm just going to assume, was there any like best bang for your buck? Because you're training every day. Like, What was like the one thing that helped recovery rise more so than the others in that process? Um, sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I would assume that, but like, that's how simple of an answer. And we usually give simple answers and it's sweet that you gave it. Cause people will be like, shut up. Sleep. Yeah, no sleep for sure. I think the sleep, uh, getting a good night's sleep and being able to sleep a little bit later in the day, of course, during the time that I was still off work, it was great because I could wake up way later. Yeah. Didn't have to wake up at 5.45 to train a 7 a.m. client or anything like that. And so it was great. Uh, I could wake up later, get eight hours, nine hours even, and then yeah. uh, you just head to the gym and it was like, you feel pretty good. And um, the second thing I have to say is just good nutrition overall. Um, for the first couple of months, I wasn't uh, I wasn't really guarding my nutrition at all. I was eating whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. Um, that probably didn't even help the uh, the healing process too much <laughs> with regards to the injury. So um, yeah, once I started, I, I started looking at um, a little bit of uh, different uh, methods of of. of eating cleaner and, and, and timing my meals a little bit better. And, and, you know, it's just, it helped everything, right? It helped with regards to the, the physical or the aesthetic gains that I was trying to make. It helped with recovery too. And, and that was really a factor too. So I'd have to say the basics, you know, sleep and good nutrition. Yeah. Cause basically you fill up the cup on the physical side of things. You got to kind of take the stress down in the other areas. And I guess well, that should be the answer. And I think that a lot of people, overthink that part of it and most of it is going to be sleep and nutrition like it's just it's just science at this point <laughs> exactly I, I don't take any supplements eh? so that's that's all that's all it's really got to come down to for me anyway well uh anyone who's ever heard one of our podcasts before knows that i'm a bit of a book enthusiast i read tons of them the most recent one i completed was a book called sleep smarter <laughs> you're talking about sleep and it had a lot of really great strategies in it but oh fuck this the author slipped in some real dubious bullshit. He cited Joseph Mercola once, and he's a known charlatan. Uh, there's some other really weird stuff about earthing and grounding. And I, and he started talking about but nutrition, and he's a, he's a low-carber, and so he's got that bias, and he's just pumping out some bullshit. So I'm like, fuck this. I don't know what to take seriously. So we always ask each guest to recommend a book. Now, you mentioned the movie reviews, and I, I see that on your Twitter all the time. So I'll, I'll, I'll challenge you. Uh, a book... That was made into a movie, <laughs> and your thoughts if the, if the if the movie lived up to the book, and then uh, maybe a work of nonfiction that uh, you've really found helpful along the way. Uh, a book that was made into a movie. I, I'm trying to think. Jeez, yeah, that's a that's a really tough one. <laughs> I'm going to go with Harry Potter. It could be like yeah, it could be a Harry Potter. It could be a Jurassic Park I'm, or something. Jurassic like Jurassic Park has a book. Yeah, what? Michael <laughs> Crichton. So you don't know this. Michael Crichton, the guy who wrote Congo, Timeline, and a bunch of other famous stuff, wrote Jurassic Park. Before the movie? movie? It was turned into a movie. That's what? right. What? Yep. Cool. <laughs> I didn't know that. See? Or Lee like, didn't know that either. Or you just... the, the Firm or some of these other... Um, what the hell is You wouldn't get that on the, Instagram. Uh, the guy who writes all the legal books. Ah, shit. I can't remember his name right now. John Grisham. Okay. Um, I would probably... You know, I'll, I'll think about most recent. So I'll think of a 2012 movie called um, Life of Pi. There you go. Yeah, okay. Life of Pi was a solid movie. Yeah, um, it, it creates a little bit of perspective as well, and uh, has a pretty interesting ending. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't mind that movie at all. I love that. And movie. Uh, it's, uh, it's a movie that uh, can definitely rival the book in terms of how, uh, how, how strong it was. So I'll say Life of Pi. I enjoyed that movie a lot. I may have teared up to that movie. I think that was like one of the movies. I don't know why. Like it, it, I like oh, that. there are parts in that yeah. movie that were definitely really, really trying yeah. on the emotions. Like, I mean, the guy, the guy has to go through a family loss, right? Yeah. So that's tough. 
fuck, that was a good movie. Good, thanks for reminding me of that. Now do you read? <laughs> <laughs> what, what's, what's the other, I guess, what's your, I guess, recent nonfiction book? So just something that has helped you kind of in your career. And like, what's the book, if you can think off the top of your head? Um, well, you know what? Starting strength books by Mark Ripto. Yeah. Like uh, that's, uh, that's right away. That's going to be like, as far as just straight basics and like understanding physics and understanding like anatomy and understanding just the basic grassroots for training, uh, information for somebody who needs traditional barbell help. That's going to be what my go-to is. I like that a lot. Um, I also have a staple as, um, my other staple is assess and correct with Eric Cressy. Um, I like that book a lot too. Um, it was really helpful for mobility drills and different troubleshooting tactics to improve the quality of big movements. Um, so yeah, those are, those are two that I'd have to say are, are um, really, really good that have been very, very helpful for me and that I also refer back to quite a lot. Cool. I like it's basic. And I think it's good. I think that that's what people <laughs> need to hear is like some of the shit ain't that hard. Like starting strength, assess correct. At least you didn't recommend textbooks. Like we've actually had a number of he might have wanted talk to. about Don't research and ed textbooks. It was like, ah. Okay. Studies too. Like, <laughs> was it spent? No. What? Oh. With Brad Dieter, like, try to reference a study for his book. Like, Dieter, you need to read other than studies. Anyways, um, <laughs> where, as we talk about how you're not on the internet, um, where can our listeners find you and read you and consume you online? That's not Instagram because he doesn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm gonna make one soon. I will yeah. promise. But uh, <laughs> no, as far as uh, as far as reaching me right now, it's uh, leeboycetraining.com. L e e b o y c e training.com is my website where you'll find my blog articles, and I also archive all of my nice. published articles for different publications there, and all my TV stuff and all of my media of any sort is all somewhere on that website. So it's uh, it's a good uh, good place to be for everything. Um, my Twitter is Coach Lee Boyce. That's my Twitter handle, and my uh, my Facebook handle is actually the same thing: facebook.com slash Coach Lee Boyce. And uh, yeah, you can now you can follow me as a, as a thing because uh, I don't have Snapchat. <laughs> I just figured <laughs> yeah. you did. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll, I'll sort of touch on this again. Like I said, um, you know, I've been following your work for a long time. You're one of the writers that I prefer to keep um, consuming your articles wherever we find them. Um, I think a really great idea would be to actually, you know, email subscribe to your website if people want to get that. But I actually hope people do take it seriously and look you up. And it'll take someone not just to follow on Instagram and casually kind of looking, but it'll take someone who's genuinely interested. But I hope some of our, our, especially our trainers, but even our enthusiasts who listen, will take the time to go and and check out more of what you're putting out there because it's really good stuff. Uh, We don't pull people onto this podcast because like, well, who can we get this week to fill in? Like, and everyone's like, well, we've had to pull someone shotgun, but every time we've pulled someone shotgun, like our last episode, Mike Howard, Mike's amazing. It's actually one of the best podcasts we've ever done. He says some of the smartest shit I've ever heard on this, on this, and he was going to be on here anyway. We just managed to squeeze him in quickly. So we really appreciate you taking the time to actually sit down with us today yeah. and come on here. Uh, guys, oh, thanks a lot, Ben. Please make the effort to actually go check out more of Lee's stuff. He's really worth it. And if you are a listener who knows Lee first and foremost, and you're only finding us for the first time. Well, we've mentioned a number of other fitness professionals that we've interviewed. Um, Chad Landers, again, is a good example, but there's many more. Dr. Mike Isertel. You can scroll through our old episodes, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. I think he may be the year one. 
You maybe are, are full year. We, we have to actually look at this, but you you might come been, out been, roughly at about a a year because we've been doing one a week. Oh, really? where we had a couple. People probably still can hear that. Too. It's been we've had like a few doubles at the end of every episode. I'm like, you may be our year. We don't have any. <laughs> we probably should take a look at when we release the first one. But um, you may yeah, your man. anniversary. Thanks guest. for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This is awesome. Easy guys. Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down.